Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about the meaning of science fiction. I'm Charlie Jane Anders, a science fiction writer who thinks a lot about science. And I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. Today we're going to be talking about the new season of Doctor Who. It's been really exciting. There's a new Doctor played by Jodie Whittaker. Everything feels brand new and spiffy. We've been just like super excited. There's been a lot of ecstatic dancing around and whistling the Doctor Who theme to each other and bouncing and <laughs> and so we're going to talk about it. First of all, thanks to our Patreon sponsors. We're almost halfway to our funding goal, and we're so grateful to all of you for sponsoring us. If you want to sponsor us, we're at patreon.com slash ouropinionsarecorrect. And now get ready to enter the time vortex. confess something here, which is that before I met you back in the mists of time, I had never really, I'd heard of Doctor Who. I'd never really watched it. I mostly knew it from a joke in the movie Sid and Nancy, where they they imitate, they, they go, exterminate, exterminate. And um, I remember at the time being like, what is that? And my British friend explaining Doctor Who to me. So everything I know about Doctor Who, I learned from you. And I feel really lucky. So I, I want you to start us out by saying, you know, what's different now? What are you thinking about this season? Yeah, I mean, I kind of grew up on Doctor Who. I lived in England when I was a little kid, and I was obsessed with Doctor Who then. And then it was on PBS, and I went to the Doctor Who exhibition when I was a little kid and was, like, freaked out because they had actual Daleks there. And we went inside the TARDIS control room, and it was going to take off. And I ran out and hid under a car for, like, half an hour. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I'm, like, an OG, old-school Doctor Who fan. It's true. And I'm really loving the new season. I feel like it has all this energy. It has, like, this freshness. It feels like kind of in some ways a return to the kind of spirit of Doctor Who where everything is just like super happy and action-packed and exciting and full of wonder and full of like just excitement at discovering stuff. It feels like the show just has like a very kind of positive, happy vibe. And Jodie Whittaker, who, you know, obviously she gets a lot of attention because she's the first woman to play Doctor Who or to play the Doctor. I think Doctor Who fans would get very stroppy, (laughs) um, even though... To play the lead in Doctor Who. Yeah, to play the Doctor. Jodie Whittaker gets a lot of attention for being the first woman to play that role, but she just brings a this lovely, you know, excited, kind of positive, joyful energy to it. And it feels a little bit reminiscent of the early 1980s when you had a younger doctor who was also very blonde, Peter Davison. And he was a little bit more fallible than Tom Baker's doctor had been. And, you know, Jodie Whittaker seems to have the same kind of relation to the Peter Capaldi doctor who was very kind of haughty and also like knew everything and was never mm-hmm. wrong. Except he had for, answer syndrome for yeah, sure. Yeah, he was yeah. definitely like the guy who would just lecture everybody about everything. And Jodie Whittaker doesn't always know everything. She sometimes makes mistakes. She sometimes kind of blunders into things. And it feels a lot fresher and more interesting. And she also has this sort of group of companions following her around the same way that Peter Davison's doctor did in the early 80s when he had Nissa, Tegan, and Adric. And luckily, none of the three current companions is even slightly as annoying as poor Adric. Oh, Adric. I mean, you know, Alaska poor guy. Adric. 
You know, one of the things that's interesting, I was thinking about this as you were kind of comparing her to the previous doctor, which is that one of the phrases or themes that she reiterates a lot in dialogue is that the whole point of her existence and her journey is to help people, to bring friends together, to make things better. I think she's given like multiple pretty rousing speeches actually about how we can change history, we can uh, make things right. And I feel like you know, the Peter Capaldi doctor who was kind of, you know, reeling from the PTSD of like his whole history, having lost his planet and his people. It was a much grimmer view. It was much more a, yes, we're here to like make things better, but like we're just also here just to survive. And like we're just, you know, it's kind of a grim business here. And I feel like with the new doctor, with the Jodie Whittaker doctor, that there is more room for that kind of enthusiasm of it's not just about like surviving. It's like, no, when we see trouble, we're going to come in and make friends. You know, like the the most recent episode uh, for us that we just watched, you know, involves the doctor making friends with a, a sad, lonely, outcast, sentient universe. And mm-hmm. that's kind of the whole point of the episode is like you can even be friends with a sentient universe. Sort of spoiler alert that sort of looks like a cute, weird frog. It was like that was adorable. Yeah. I feel like a big theme of the Peter Capaldi episodes from pretty much the entire run was that the doctor is kind of a bastard and he has to be a bastard. And that's just the thing. And like the first season of Capaldi, there's a a running thing where he lies to people and he manipulates people and he is kind of callous and cruel a little bit. His companion, Clara, doesn't understand and feels like he's being needlessly mean. But over time, she learns to appreciate the importance of lying to people and the importance of manipulating people. And then she gets as good at lying and manipulating as the doctor himself with kind of disastrous results. And then in his final season, he has a similar kind of mentor relationship with Bill, who's like this very kind of cheerful young person who has to learn some hard lessons from Capaldi's doctor. And it's it's sort of, you know, he was sort of the grumpy old man who has seen things, who has all this damage and people don't understand. And I feel like that's all gone now. And that, that kind of grumpiness and that kind of like weight, you know, and Matt Smith's doctor had it too. And David mm-hmm. Tennant's doctor had it. The kind of like there's a heaviness weighing me down that, Mm -hmm. you know, and I have to do terrible things. I want to say that I think you said, oh, I think that that was true with the David Tennant's doctor as well. And I didn't think so. I think toward the end, yes, because he has been through a lot. But I keep thinking this season that the doctor that Jodie Whittaker reminds me of the most is David Tennant. And I think partly it's their acting styles. I think she kind of has taken a page from his book of the kind of wide-eyed, like, wow, we're just going to have some fun, even though our legs are being ground up by space sharks or whatever, right? Like, here we go. <laughs> like, let's do yeah. it, gang. No, but it's there's true. it's also like there's a kind of innocence and playfulness there that I think she's really um, working with. I just wanted to ask you a question about a hunch that I had about this season that could be wrong because I am not as much of an expert as you are at all. But I know that one of the things that the BBC wanted to do with this season was have all new monsters. And so we're not having a return to the Daleks. We don't have the Cybermen. We don't have the Santorans. Santorans. Santorans yeah. with the like, <laughs> I am here to fart on your planet or whatever. That was, um, no, that, that, was, uh, that was the Slovene that are the farty ones. I thought, well, no, they are farty. I meant, sorry, by, by fart, I meant that more metaphorically. There is, when, remember when the Santorans invade Earth and are going to ter- they're going to turn it into uh, with their car planet? With car exhaust or with whatever. With car exhaust. Oh, and God, so, yeah, was, uh, I kind anyway. of love that episode. <laughs> it was actually, it was a two 
new part. It was a very exciting episode. It was a lot. Episode. Anyway, it was hilarious. So the point is that because we're not kind of going back to these um, staples of the series, these monster staples, instead we're revisiting historical, like well-known historical moments at a rate that I think is like much higher than in previous seasons. Like we've had so many here we are watching Rosa Parks on the bus. Here we are watching the Division of India. You know, here we are watching the witch trials. The witch trials, and like I feel like we've had a lot of like very specific like history lessons. Like I really, especially like the Division of India episode, I felt like was very like. And now we will recap like what happened. Here's how colonialism screwed over a huge part of the world. And <laughs> and again, like maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like that's not something that has happened a lot in recent Doctor Who. I think it happened a lot in the 60s and 70s maybe, but like not in uh, – what do you think? I mean is that – Classic 1960s Doctor Who did have a thing where they would visit the French Revolution. They would visit the Roman Empire. It was always usually Europe and it was usually famous moments from European history specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a thing that they did. They also did visit the Aztec Empire right on the eve of Cortez arriving, I guess. Oh, no. Um, which <laughs> is one of their early episodes. It's an interesting episode. but And they do um, a lot of um, Cold War and World War II. And right. Like, yeah, and actually there was there was some of that in like the Matt Smith era. They visit the Cold War. and That's they, true. You know, there's some World War II era stuff. But yeah, I feel like this, in general, this season seems to be trying really hard for a different kind of accessibility. And there's the accessibility of like, you need to know less about the history of Doctor Who to appreciate this season. You don't need to know about like all these monsters. You don't need to know about Gallifrey. You don't need to know about the Time Lords. I don't even think the Time Lords have been mentioned once this season. No, I don't think they have. I don't think the, the fact, words she, Time Lords have been mentioned at all. Right, and the Doctor is still relearning what it means to be the Doctor. Like she's still even now like up to the point that we've gotten in the series, which is almost this this season is almost over. Yeah, she's still learning how to use the TARDIS. You know, right. the TARDIS the TARDIS UX. <laughs> well, that's problematic. That's always a running thing with the TARDIS. It's, it's true. never it's yeah, not it's super always user a little, friendly. It has a mind of its own. But she has a mind of yeah. its own. Yeah. And part of that accessibility is that it's also sort of giving like these interesting like little history lessons. You know, the show feels a little bit more aimed towards kids than it had been the last few years. There's a little bit less emphasis on trying to like you know, impress adults with cleverness or with like cool ideas and much more just like kid friendly history lessons, kid friendly adventures. Mm -hmm. And like it's a kid's show that adults can watch, which is what Doctor Who was a lot back in the day. It feels like it's a much more accessible show. And it feels like part of the, the kind of running theme of it does seem to be that we're kind of thinking about history. We're thinking about progress and like what progress means and like particularly I keep thinking about the Rosa Parks episode where the villain of the Rosa Parks episode is this dude from the 79th century who was like imprisoned in some storm cage I guess which is the same prison that River Song was locked in I think so that's like one of the few callbacks we've gotten this season Mm -hmm. he has this whole tirade about how he was living there in the 79th century in this prison and he realized that this thing with Rosa Parks was when it all went wrong and the idea yeah, that he's like, this future white supremacist, he's basically. a future white supremacist. But the implication there is that Rosa Parks actions, you know, in, you know, refusing to give up her seat have consequences that still resonate in the 79th century and that that progress has never been undone or that it's continued to kind of have you know, knock-on effects, and that if you change that one White moment... White supremacists are still feeling sad and vulnerable. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, that, that progress future, is which, durable and that progress yeah. continues. And that's that's the thing that, like, is really so interesting. Utopian. It's 
really utopian. And it's this, you know, this idea that it's not just that progress is durable, that, but that progress has like kind of ripple effects through time. And that, you know, that far in the future, like, I mean, 79,000 years ago or 7,900 years ago, there's not much happening back then that we still know about now. So it's like, it's really utopian and really optimistic. And I feel like that theme of progress and that idea of, you know, making small differences in like the witch trials or in, mm-hmm. you know, other historical moments can like have effects that continue to this day is a thing that the show is kind of gently nudging at, which is interesting to me. Yeah. And we it, we see it again and again, and including in the, the sort of premiere episode, there's a whole speech about like, we can choose now to be better people. You know, we don't have to be dudes who wear teeth on our heads or whatever. Um, you know, it's, it's cool. We can do other stuff. But actually, it was a very moving speech. And I think that that is definitely a big feature of this season is is sort of imagining how history has changed. Also, of course, I mean, I think this is sort of an obvious point, but it's worth making, which is that this season, instead of going back to visit like Charles Dickens or, you know, other white men in history, it's like two of the most important characters we, inv- we visit in history. One of them is Rosa Parks. Through her, we meet other civil rights activists who are black. And then we also meet uh, Yaz's grandmother. And not only is that great because we're learning about her history and it's a woman of color who's from a colonized country and it's really cool to see her perspective. But on top of all that stuff, it's cool to have this idea that an ordinary person can affect history and that her life is caught up in this really uh, important historical transition and that what she does at that moment really matters. And so it's not even that we have to meet great people in history. We can also just meet ordinary people in history and, you know, which, of course, the doctor does all the time. But like in that episode, it was clearly intended to be like what happens to these people at this moment is actually super important because, you know, they're in the middle of this historical struggle. Which actually brings me to one of my complaints about this season, which is that you mentioned that there's no returning monsters and that the focus instead has been on, you know, more history and more delving into different views of of human progress, past and future. The actual monsters that we have met have by and large been very forgettable and have felt very incidental to the stories. Like, well, except for Toothy Face. Toothy was Face creepy. was creepy. Yeah, yeah. no. And he funny. was good. He was Tim Shaw, I guess his name was. Mm-hmm. He was like, he was creepy Tim and funny. Tim Shaw. Yeah. <laughs> but there's, you know, in general, like there's been a thing where a bunch of these episodes have had creatures that either like, for example, in the Partition of India one, it, I don't actually understand why there needed to be aliens in that episode. They just, they turn up. It turns out that they're not actually doing anything. They're just hanging out. There's just some aliens. They're just some aliens who are hanging out and we didn't even need to bother with them. They're just not really there. And they, they're incidental to the story. There's other ones where the aliens kind of turn up in the last five minutes and it's like, oh, and there's some aliens. Oh, and now they're gone. And it's like... It has this weird Scooby-Doo feeling <laughs> to it where, like, I mean, this is this, one of the things that's great about Scooby-Doo is that it taught kids about skepticism, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it seems like it's one thing. It seems like it's magic, but actually it's just science and mirrors and, like, it's mm-hmm. just a bad guy with some money. And so what we see in the witch trial episode felt to me like that, where it was like... Everybody thinks there's magic. There's like weird tentacles reaching out of the ground. And then it's like, oh, actually, it's just aliens who are doing what are they doing? They're like an alien They're trying army to escape who were from buried a hill. under a hill. It Some was... like weird Scientology thing where they were stuck inside a volcano. I don't know. It was weird. <laughs> I was like, I, what is happening here? And it was just like, I am an alien. You can tell because I have weird lines in my face. Yeah, like, that was... felt, they felt like an afterthought and they didn't, it felt like they were incidental to the story that was being told in a lot of ways. And that, it feels like in general, the the kind of, 
the villain reveals of a lot of these episodes. Like, I know you wanted to talk about the Amazon.com episode, and like, that's one where. <laughs> I like how you say it as Amazon.com. Like, it's not <laughs> Amazon, it's Amazon.com. Yeah, that was one where the villain, it's like the Scooby Dooiness of it, where it's like, it's not the evil computer, it's actually some dude. So, what did you think about the yeah. Amazon episode? Okay, so I had a lot of thoughts about the Kerblam episode because, uh, as you said, it is about Amazon.com. <laughs> um, and it brings up, I mean, there's a whole backlash against Amazon globally now, I feel like especially in Europe and the UK, where it's viewed as this company that is destroying a bunch of other industries and also that it's associated really strongly with automation and with kind of the idea of robots stealing our jobs. Whether or not that's true, that's what Amazon is kind of associated with, while at the same time being associated with the fact that they're one of the largest employers in the world. They're the second largest employer in the United States. Uh, private employer. So they're a scary company and they deliver things. And so then we get this episode of Doctor Who about Kerblam, which is this company that the doctor loves that has robots that deliver things to us, kind of the way Amazon has been planning to use drones to deliver Mm -hmm. things to us and blimps. And if you look at Amazon (laughs) actually has a patent on a system for delivering drones via blimp to people, um, which I've, I've actually written about. Just Google on it. It's fantastic. Amazon has some crazy patents. So anyway, the episode starts out feeling like, at first, it's a criticism of automation. We see that there's all this anxiety around automation mm-hmm. and, like, you know, we kind of get sucked in. I, I'm not going to go into the whole plot. But then the kind of switcheroo in the third act or the fifth act. I don't know how many acts you think that these episodes have. Let's call it a third act. The switcheroo is that actually it's a terrorist who's causing all the problems. It's not automation. It's like a human. And his goal as a terrorist is to kill consumers. So he's mad about Kerblam. Partly he's mad about the automation, but instead of taking aim at the company, He's sending bombs to consumers. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think that the show is trying to say that he's confused. I think that the show is trying to say that, you know, there's a legitimate grievance against consumers. And so it ends up being this, like, incredibly confusing allegory because on one hand, it's about automation. On the other hand, it's just about, like, how consumers are bad and you shouldn't be buying things or something. I mean, the doctor— And then the solution is— to have less automation, right? Right. And so that's kind of the the bow on top is like, oh, well, we learned our lesson. We're going to have less automation. It's like, how does having less automation solve the problem of bombs being sent to consumers? I don't know. So the thing that we're told early on is because it is true that it's like a company that's like 90% automated and the only the 10% human is only because of some law that says that they have to employ humans and it's basically like, you know, a welfare program for humans that they get yeah. jobs that could have been done by robots but they're being done by hum- for sure. humans yeah. as like a welfare thing. And then it's the, like a firm th- at some point the doctor kind of trots out the platitude that people always say that it's it's not the technology, it's how people choose to use it. People choose to buy things from Kerblam, which means that they don't get to have jobs. Like they could be buying things from their like little neighborhood shop. Their cyber shop. They could be buying things from like their, somebody who makes things by hand shop. instead of buying a toy from a Kerblam that was made by a, presumably some kind of factory. You could just buy a handmade toy made 
by some guy in your neighborhood who's like whittling or whatever. And your local, your local planet. And so the, the, the idea is that it's the consumer's fault because the consumers choose to buy from this cheap, convenient thing, which I think is definitely oversimplifying. A lot of people don't have other options, like people who live in remote areas. People what who, if you live in a remote planet, you right. know, or you live in the TARDIS and the only <laughs> way you can get your thing is if this hologram shows up with your box. Really, everybody stuff. should just start using replicators and then the problem would be solved. Then it's, we'd be sending bombs through the replicator. I think that that episode, because of the need to have a clever twist kind of becomes an incoherent metaphor because they want to have a a clever reveal about who the bad guy is. And the bad guy has to not be who you expect, which is the computer. I also just think that like a lot of science fiction that's responding to kind of immediate social anxieties, and in this case, it's automation and specifically Amazon, it kind of doesn't get it right when it comes to the allegory. Like, it's very obvious that it's Amazon. You know, nobody thinks Kerblam is anything but Amazon. But at the same time, like you said, it's like it needs it, they want to have a twist. They want it to involve some kind of terrorism, but they also want it to be about automation. And so everything gets kind of crammed in, like all of these social anxieties about basically mega corporations get crammed in. And so we don't get I would have loved an episode that was just looking at automation. That would have been really interesting. And there could have been a whole creepy twist or like terrorist Mm -hmm. thing that you could do that would be just like someone who's coming in and messing up the robots. Right. As someone who loves political science fiction, I just get grumpy about that. Like, you know, it's like, come on, you guys, like you've got a really rich and fertile social anxiety here. Like, just stick with that. Don't like throw everything else in there with like, but consumerism is also the problem and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And it's like, well, no, I mean, that's a separate problem. And like, you know. And also, the other thing that pissed me off about that episode was that the doctor loves Kerblam. And I was like, really? Like, why does... So the doctor's shilling for Amazon now? (laughs) Well, she just loves the cute robot. She loves the cute robot. Yeah. I don't know. I thought that was weird. Like, I felt like that was the thing. Okay, that's my final comment about that episode that that I found problematic was the way that the episode was all about how the problem is this disgruntled anti-consumer guy. The company just needs to be reformed. We love the company. The doctor loves the company. And then at the end, it's like, oh, well, we'll just have 50% humans and everything is fine. <laughs> and um, I mean, it's not that I think that you know automation is bad. Like in real life, I think automation is inevitable and we'll figure it out. Just the idea that it's not the company that's the problem. It's that you know it's everything else and we can easily fix this problem. Okay, that was the end of my grumping. Yeah, and I feel like this season in general has sort of made very tentative stabs to kind of talk about capitalism. There's like that one episode where due to capitalism, basically due to Donald Trump building hotels on top of toxic waste sites, you have giant spiders. Their hotels on top of like disused coal mines filled with toxic garbage leads to giant spiders. And this is some kind of metaphor for capitalism that is never fully kind and of like industrialism. It's a tangled web of, of allegory. Lot, yeah, like it's sort of like pollution and, and it's, climate yeah. abuse. It feels like the show Environmental abuse, has sorry. tried to kind of make a statement about capitalism, but hasn't quite been able to figure out what that statement is or how to make it yeah, in a way. I, I had totally forgotten about the, the spider <laughs> trash episode. But yeah, no, that was another. That was, again, it was like the Kerblam episode. It was like they had an allegory. They had a political thought and then they were like but what about this political thought but what about this thing like we can add that too what if it was a hotel built on top of it it was was kind of a think piece in the shape of an episode yeah but it was like yeah it was like there were some hot hot takes takes. (laughs) (laughs) takes. too many hot takes 
Like, give us just the one hot take. <laughs> you only have an hour, people. Like, yeah. come on. Like, you know, let's just like let's like really delve into the spiders. Like, we don't need all the other stuff. But I do want to talk about the theme of family before we move on. And like, you know, the latest episode, the one we just watched, is about like this weird family where this dude basically abandons his daughter in this house that he's boarded up and put like fake monster noises outside of so that he can go off and like live with his dead wife. It's like the Norwegian version of the movie The Village or something like that. Kind of, It is The Village. It's like, and it's right down to having a blind daughter. So FYI, Shyamalan, get your lawyers ready. (laughs) (laughs) It's an homage. It's an homage, yeah. I feel like there's been a theme of like weird family stuff this season and like particularly we've delved a lot into Ryan's family and Yaz's family yeah but you know this whole thing of like kind of dysfunctional families the witch trial episode was also about a weirdly dysfunctional family yeah it where was. you know the woman leading the witch trials turns out to be the cousin and or there's the granddaughter of the person that she kills at the start of the episode mm-hmm. it's like I don't know I feel like the show is kind of driving towards something of like how families get broken and what you can do about it. I don't know. What do you think about that? I definitely think that having more of an ensemble cast allows them to tell kind of work family stories much better. The sort of one companion model winds up feeling a little bit more romantic. And then once you start adding on more companions, it gives you that kind of work family feeling. And that's been kind of nice. It irks me a little bit that once we have a female doctor, suddenly family is a big thing. But you've pointed out to me that there have been these ensembles in previous seasons with male doctors. So I'm I'm not going <laughs> to complain about that now. Right. But I do think that on the utopian side, we're also seeing the show trying to model families, mm-hmm. model families that we choose. I think we all knew from the very beginning of the season that one of the arcs would be eventually, you know, Ryan and his grandpa would have this moment where he was like calling him Gramps or Granddad. Granddad or sorry, Gramps. But you know what I mean? Like he finally calls him Granddad and and I I knew that was going to happen and and I think that's one of the things that's kind of awesome about this season is that it's imagining how families kind of come together in weird circumstances, people who wouldn't necessarily have anything in common suddenly become allies. I love that. And I actually got a little choked up when Ryan called Graham oh, granddad. I, to- I was crying. I, I was, was totally up choked crying. up. I do think it's a little weird that we keep hearing about Ryan's dad, who presumably is uh, of African origin. We never get to meet him. We hear about him a bunch and yeah, how he like abandoned. We abandoned Ryan after Ryan's mom died and left him with the grandmother who had who died in the first episode. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like there's this weird opposition where, like, Graham is, like, the father that Ryan deserves or the father figure that Ryan deserves. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, this black father who we don't get to meet or really we just hear about him is, like, the father that Ryan shouldn't have or doesn't want. Yeah. I mean, there's some weird racial stuff. I mean, it was also really upsetting that the super badass black grandma has to die in the first episode. And, like, I think many of us watching it were like, ugh, really? I still hope they bring her back. I mean, there's a million ways to bring people back from the dead on Doctor Who. It well, they already the brought time. her back as like a fake I know, but whatever tentacle of the sentient universe. <laughs> I hope she gets to come back like properly. I hope that there's some time bubble where she yeah. just like is like, oh, I'm alive again. I really hope that they do. I think that that would be a, a good, actually, a good ending for them to be reunited. I do too. Because I, I, I have been feeling like at various points that Ryan gets to have not just a white grandpa, but then the doctor is kind of his 
grandma or his mom, right? Right. So so it's like basically rebuilding a family for two people of color with white parents this time. Kind of. I mean, you know, I think that... Less so with Yaz, because Yaz, we actually meet her family. And her family is kind of awesome. They've got issues, but they're they're lovable. And her grandma's awesome, who we spend time with. With the thing you said about work family and, like, you know, chosen family is kind of... They're friends. Like, I don't think that the doctor is anybody's mom. I'm actually really glad that there has, has not been a single moment in this season where I felt like the doctor was being turned into anybody's mom figure. Yeah. No, actually, that's really true. You're really right, because I think she's kind of, you know, she's a leader, but she's not parental. She's not parental at all. She's She's like dangerous. She does dangerous stuff. She's your kind of weird friend. She's Mm -hmm. your weird, quirky friend who shows up. Or like your older sister. Yeah. Like your, you know, young, weird aunt. Yeah. She's just this fun lady who shows up and takes you on adventures. And like, you know, I was... Maybe a little worried that they were going to try and turn her into a mom, like which I feel like happened. I was fucking totally worried, and I'm still worried, and I get (laughs) grumpy. Like, like I said to you, like I was like, oh, they gave her a family, grumble, grumble, and you're like, no. (laughs) I mean, you know, could be worse, could be Adric, but yeah, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) no, I'm just saying, yeah, you know, it could be worse. They could have easily had moments where they were like. You know, either positioning her as a mom or even saying something like, oh, you're like our protector. You're like our mom. Like there's so many shows that would do that. All right. So I think we've dissected the show a lot and we're going to have many more thoughts ongoing uh, in future episodes for sure. But I'm curious what you're hoping for, Charlie, like going forward. Like, what do you want to see more of? What do you want to see less of? Like, what is the show meaning to you now? I really hope that the show keeps that sort of innocent sense of fun that it has right now and keeps that kind of like happy vibe. I feel like it's it's actually, you know, feels just so refreshed and so much of a piece with like Steven Universe and Supergirl and a bunch of the other shows that I've been enjoying lately. She-Ra, it has that same kind of feeling of like happy, upbeat optimism that is just what I need in 2018 and it doesn't I feel like I'm so relieved to have lost some of that kind of grumpy foreboding darkness I hope we don't get back to that at the same time I would love to see the show kind of working in more darkness again I feel like if I was in the room where they were discussing the next season I would be like let's have scarier creatures again let's have baddies who are actually really bad and really not easily disposed of in like five minutes and you know maybe don't bring back the Cybermen and the Daleks but make another really earnest attempt to create the next generation of monsters that would be like the next Cybermen and Daleks like for another generation. Yeah like the social media Daleks. Oh god no no (laughs) please no god. (laughs) I mean the Cybermen are already kind of social media they were like all about Bluetooth and stuff Extirpate. I don't know Mm. What I was thinking I'd like to see more of and I think this fits in with what you were saying is I'd like it a little bit more of a little bit more serialization I don't mm-hmm. want tons like this season was totally episodic like mm-hmm. you could watch it entirely out of order and it wouldn't matter and I think to develop a new big bad you might want to have an arc so maybe we get three episodes that are kind of loosely connected that are yeah. dealing with the same dark force or um, conspiracy of some kind, something, yeah, creepy that is not that we don't get the Scooby-Doo ending of like, oh, we discovered it was like a weird prison hill. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck that was. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that a little bit more serialization, a little bit maybe not as much as Stephen Moffat was doing a lot of the time, but as much as like Russell T. 
Davies used to do where he would kind of throw in little breadcrumbs and then yeah. at the end it's like, oh, this adds up to this scary, terrible thing. I think that, you know, a little bit more, like part of what I love about Doctor Who in general is that it's a show about this kind of eccentric, weird character who travels around in a, you know, a phone booth long before Bill and Ted did it is just a total dorky, weird, quirky person who stands up to unthinkable evil and like terrifying, horrible monsters that are capable of like destroying, you know, whole planets and like- And universes. Yeah, and just like terrifying, awful, scary monsters. And I feel like that's the bedrock of Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. And where Doctor Who, you know, sometimes falls down in, in my view is that the threats aren't scary enough or big enough or serious enough. And then often, I'm really, really, really glad that it's not all about people knowing the doctor or everything is somehow the doctor's fault originally or the villain is obsessed with the doctor or everybody's obsessed with the doctor or everybody's like... We don't need that meta shit. Yeah, and like there's only been like literally one scene this season where somebody had heard of the doctor and it was kind of played for laughs. Uh, I love that. I think that you know, the villains can be scarier and more terrible if they're, they have their own agenda and they don't really care about the doctor. The doctor is just this annoying woman who keeps getting in their way. I think that's great. But I think that a return to kind of like really insurmountable odds, really terrible threats would be a thing that the show could, could benefit from at this point. Yeah. The thing I love most about Doctor Who and the reason why it's my happy place and when I hear the music, like I my heart literally soars is because it's about using rationality and humor in the face of evil Mm -hmm. and you know we don't need guns we don't in fact the doctor often insults guns and weapons all we need is to think about this problem and to have good friends and i think you know and that's where it's kind of like steven universe too it's it's just it's about how we can actually get through dark times without blowing shit up and burning it down so I am looking forward to more Jodie Whittaker, yes. more Doctor Who, and I hope it lasts forever. Same. <laughs> Same. Here we are. This is a short little segment called what I'm obsessed with. Charlie, what are you obsessed with right now? I'm kind of obsessed with the novel Fangirl by Rainbow Rowell. I finally just read it after hearing about it for years, and it is so amazing. It's the story of this girl who basically writes, it's not Harry Potter fanfic, it's fanfic for like a made-up universe that's very clearly Harry Potter influenced. And it's about like a wizard who has to share a dorm room with a vampire who's kind of evil. But in the (laughs) fanfic, they become like boyfriends. It's this girl who writes this like, you know, slash fanfic who goes off to college with her twin sister who she's inseparable with. And then they go to college and they're no longer inseparable. And everybody thinks that, you know, this girl just spending all her time writing fanfic is a mistake. And they're like, you should be in the creative writing program. You should be writing serious fiction. And she just wants to write her Harry Potter fanfic. And it's like it's this beautiful, just like super deep, compassionate amazing exploration of what it's like to write fanfic and to make it even better after she published that novel Rainbow Rowell went back and published an entire book of like basically fanfic about her you know fake version of Harry Potter with the vampire boyfriend roommate 
So, which really? is called that Carry she On that she wrote, that Rainbow Rowell wrote. <laughs> and it's like, okay, it just, I love that so her. much. That's and amazing. Like, yeah. And it just like, I'm so in awe of her. And Rainbow Rowell is now writing Runaways and I just bought the first two trades and haven't read them yet, but I'm so excited. Yeah. What She's you, great. What are you obsessed with now? So I'm obsessed with this documentary that I saw a few weeks ago called Bisbee 17, which I say it's a documentary, but it's also about a town called Bisbee in Arizona that's haunted. And it's haunted by this horrific incident that happened um, at the time that the documentary was made. It was 100 years ago. So it was in 1917, where the workers at a local copper mine were on strike with the IWW. And the owners of the mine got in touch with a sheriff in a neighboring town and told him that he could deputize anyone he wanted. We don't we aren't sure how it was that they gave him this kind of order or asked him to do this. It's all lost to history, but we know that they were in touch with this sheriff. They said he can deputize anyone he wants and to put an end to the strike. And so what this sheriff did was he literally deputized every single white man in town in Bisbee and in some neighboring towns and took all over 900 strikers out to a local baseball field, loaded them into a train, and drove them out into the middle of the desert to die because they just wanted to shut that strike down. And uh, what the film is about is how in 2017, the town of Bisbee decided to do a reenactment of this deportation of these uh, workers. And one of the reasons why Uh, This particular strike was so threatening was that it was racially integrated. A lot of the workers were immigrants. This is a town that's right on the border with Mexico. But they weren't just Mexican immigrants. They were Central European immigrants. They were people from all over. And it was a very multicultural town, which it's not really anymore because they got rid of most of their uh, multicultural men. And so as the town reenacts this, they build like a fake train and they and they write some dialogue. They even write a song. Um, Some of the people who are in the reenactment are the direct descendants of people who were involved in the deportation. And the way it's filmed, it really captures what it means to have such a horrific incident in your city's history and have it be covered up. And yet people who are there are still, you know, they are the inheritors of of this incident. Um, I call it an incident, but it's like it was, they were trying to mass murder. Apparently most of the men did survive. None of them came back to town. Some of them enlisted in the army. Some of them, you know, made it into other places. It's such a great study of what it means to tell stories about history and our connection to history and how much it's still alive around us. And also it was just really interesting take on historical reenactments because Bisbee is right near the town of Tombstone where they do Uh constant. And so we actually, in the documentary, they visit Tombstone and they recruit some of the people who do reenactments in Tombstone to be in their reenactment. Oh, wow. Um, And it's so great. It's the film is funny and scary and dark I just can't praise it enough. So if you have a chance to see it, it's called Bisbee 17, B-I-S-B-E-E. And it's playing in some small theaters, and I suspect it's going to be available streaming uh, very soon. So anyway, that's my obsession right now. 
Yay. Well, thank you so much for listening to Our Opinions Are Correct. Uh, Thanks to Veronica Simonetti, our audio producer. Thanks to Chris Palmer for the music. We have a Patreon at patreon.com, Our Opinions Are Correct. And please, please, please support us. Uh, Please find us on your favorite podcast places like Apple Podcasts and review us and subscribe and tell all your friends. And please follow us on Twitter at OOACpod. And we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Bye. Bye.